Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Uh, so it was about a year ago in this room that we publicly launched this church, and it's been uh, really like a fun and wild ride, right? Like we've seen God do some incredible things. We've seen lives changed. We've seen several baptisms. We've seen marriages built up. We've seen a ton of babies born. Uh, and now there's like a whole nother bunch of babies being born. Uh, we got a fertile bunch here. And so it's, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm excited. I'm just eager to see what the Lord is going to do now moving into this next season. And I'm eager to celebrate Christmas here this, this month with you guys this morning to, to celebrate the, the birth of our, our Lord Jesus together. And so uh, if you have your Bible with you, I want you to go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Now, um, if, you're, if you're new with us, uh, you, you need to know that normally what we do is we go through books of the Bible. We normally go through passages of, of Scripture. Uh, but uh, this morning, we're going to sort of jump around a little bit to a few different places. Uh, and I want us to begin with one verse in Romans 8. But, uh, but before we get there, I, I want to know if you guys have, have noticed something. Um, you may have noticed, like there's this age-old debate that's been raging on the Internet over the last month, Right? Like, you've probably seen the arguments from both sides of the issue. They can get, like, pretty nasty, right? Uh, I'm not talking about politics. I'm not talking about climate change. Um, the age-old question being debated is, uh, when is it okay to start listening to Christmas music? Right? Everyone's been talking about this for the last month. Like, when is it okay to start listening to Christmas music? Now, we're in this part of the season now, though, that no matter where you land on what side of the aisle you land on that question, everyone's agreed that now we're kind of in the clear, right? Now we're in the clear. Everyone sort of agrees that after Thanksgiving, it's okay to let that, like, Nat King Cole ring, right? That Bing Crosby spin on, like, the record player or stream on Spotify. And so, like, that's, that's, and that's really just, like, one of the most curious things about this time of year, right? Like, this is the one time of year where it's okay for people to just play songs that are all about Jesus, you hear it at the mall. You hear it on the radio. I heard it at the gym this week, right? Like everyone's listening to songs about Jesus. Now, why do we do that this time of year? Why is there this regular cultural rhythm of joy and celebration centered on Jesus? Like I want you to stop and think about what it is that the world is celebrating, 
Now, to be clear, I know that the, the Christmas music, people just kind of enjoy the music, and that's, that doesn't necessarily mean that they, that they know Jesus or that they're, they're, they're Christians, but, but I want you to stop and think, what is it that the world is celebrating this time? Why, why the songs? Why the celebration? Why the Christmas cheer? You see, the reason that there's so much joy and celebration around the season is all of that echoes the good news of that first Christmas. That something has been done in history. Something has come to make right every wrong, to reconcile us back from this broken relationship that we have with God, to make us whole again. And the Christmas story is really the true story of the world. It's a story of hope, hope for a world that really just longs for hope. We long for hope, don't we? We long for hope. That is the true meaning of Christmas, that hope is here. We're calling our Christmas sermon, our Advent series, Hope is Here, because at that first Christmas in a manger in Bethlehem, hope in its truest and fullest form stepped down into human history. And so I want us to look at three points on that this morning. First, we're going to look at the reality of our longing for hope. Secondly, we're going to look at the reason for our longing. And lastly, the remedy for our longing. Let's look at that first one. The reality of our longing. We all long for hope, don't we? Like every single one of us, regardless if you're like a Christian this morning or not, every single one of us has to own the fact that we know that something is wrong with this world, right? Every one of us has to come to terms with that. Even the most hard-hearted skeptic has to admit that just something just doesn't seem right about this world, that there is some ideal that we know in our mind, like the world should be this way, but it's not. With all the evil, all the suffering, all the pain, we ask ourselves, why is it this way? Why does this world feel broken? Why does it feel like things are not what they should be? Why, where does that like, sort of aching feeling come from? We just read it during the scripture reading, but I want, I want you to take a look at, at chapter, Romans chapter 8, verse 22. Uh, again, read it with me. It says, For we know that the whole creation... We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul is saying here, he says, we know, like this is common knowledge, right? We know that the whole creation has been groaning together, and he uses this metaphor, in the pains of childbirth until now. It's a, it's a bit graphic, I know. <laughs> but that word groaning in the original Greek, it comes up a handful of times in this chapter, and it's a word that, 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 that means, you know, to be, to be in intense pain, like childbirth. Like, people groan when they break a limb, right? They groan when, 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 when they're dying, when they're alone. They groan when they're in labor, a firsthand experience witnessing that, <laughs> They groan when, when they're in pain. The original Greek word here used for groaning, is, 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 it's, it's also used for like groanings in the battlefield. Now, we, we don't get a sense of this. Uh, uh, we don't get a sense of this in like Hollywood war movies. 
But in a real battle sort of situation, a real battlefield, when that battle ends and the smoke clears and the, the crazy loud noises and all the explosions and gunfire, when that's all stopped, like one of the most grim and unsettling uh, experiences that, that veterans say they experience is, is, is when all that has, has stopped. One of the most grim experiences that they share is, is the groaning of people who are wounded and left laying on the ground after. They're groaning because they see like their own body parts lying across the road from them. They're wounded and they're groaning for, for help, for hope, because they don't, they don't want to bleed out. It's this, the pain of, of dying, the groan of dying. That's the vivid picture, the vivid sort of word picture that Paul gives us. We all know that creation groans in this type of way. We live in a time of groaning. Paul says we groan. We say things like things are not right. And he says, creation grows. He says, we know that creation grows, which is, or groans, which is, which is fascinating because the apostle says here, it's not just us that groans, but he says creation itself groans. Like the material world that we inhabit also in some sense is groaning. It's groaning because it's giving way to decay. It's giving way to destructions. It's what scientists call the second law of thermodynamics, which tells us that the universe as we know it is slowing down. It's deteriorating. It's, it's falling apart. Things don't, things don't get better. They don't progress. They don't speed up uh, by themselves without some type of outside influence. Like the universe left to itself is deteriorating. Even the most encouraging optimist who will tell you to shoot for the, you know, will, you know the most encouraging optimist tells you to us to like shoot for the stars, right? You know that saying? But science tells us that even the, even the stars eventually die. This is why our bodies break down. Creation groans. Our bodies even break down. I mean, I, I just turned 35, so like, I get that, right? <laughs> It was only a few years ago when I passed sort of that point, that threshold, and where I realized like I can no longer just like enjoy a donut in a single moment. I have to now feel it for the next few weeks. One of the things that I love about the scriptures here in this point is, is the scriptures are totally honest on the topic of suffering and groaning and longing. The scriptures don't try to hide the fact that life is hard sometimes. It doesn't try to hide the fact that the world is a mess. Like the scriptures just kind of own that. It owns the groaning. And like the rest of Romans 8, it invites us to pray and to trust God in the midst of it. Uh, Karl Marx often accused religious people, uh, or he accused religion in general, of being the opiate of the masses is what he called it the opiate of the people. He said religion is just like a drug that's supposed to distract us from the pains of the world. That, that's how he tried to make sense of religious people. But, but this verse in Romans 8 shows us that the gospel isn't a distraction from the pain. It actually acknowledges the pain. The pain, it acknowledges it, and, and, and it tells us that God steps into it with us. That's the good news of Christmas. 
God doesn't try to distract us from what's wrong in the world. He steps into it with us. The good news of Christmas is that God is with us. But before we sort of unpack that, I want us to sort of turn the corner and talk about why it got this way. Why do we, why do we groan? Why does creation groan? What exactly went wrong with the world, and why do we long for hope? That leads us to our second point, which is the reason for our longing. The reason for our longing. So why does humanity long for hope? Now, if you were to like stop five people at, at, at the mall or at the lake and like ask them what they think of life in this world, you're probably going to get a whole bunch of different answers, right? Because some might actually talk about like the great blessings of this world. Right? Like a lot, an optimist might talk about the blessings of this world, while others might talk about like the difficulties and the tragedy, tragedies of, of this world. But the re- reality is, is that we, we, we kind of live with both, don't we? There's a real tension. Like on the one hand, we have this sense that the world is good, that life is a gift, that it's full of blessings like family, relationships, music, art, parties, Build your own pizzas. On the other hand, we also have this sense that something has gone horribly wrong. And so we ask the question, why is this world so jacked up? Why is it so messed up? After all the centuries we've been around, after all the progress, all our technology, why do we still have this mess? Why is it that our souls groan for something truer, for something better, for something more than what we have? Scripture begins by telling the story of how we came to be and tells us what what went wrong. In Genesis 1 and 2, first two chapters of the Bible, we read about how God intended the world to be. He's the creator of this beautiful design. When God made all creation, he, he called it what? He called it good. It says that he stepped back, looked at his creation, and he called it good. When he spun the stars into existence and when he he fashioned ourselves together of, of all the creatures, when he formed mankind from the dust of the ground, all of this, he said, is good. It's the word he describes it with. He says that it was good. And when we, we read about how he made us, how he made us as, as humans in his image, and he invited us into his great mission and purpose to bring more goodness and blessing of his, uh, just the goodness and blessing of his rule and of his reign to the ends of the earth. Like he put humanity's first parents, he put Adam and Eve in the garden, and he told them to enjoy the fruit. He says, Produce goodness, till the ground, expand the borders of the garden to the ends of the world. Like that, that, that was the good life that we were created for. That was the goodness that existed in the beginning. But then in Genesis 3, something awful happened. In Genesis 3, what happened? The fall. It's what theologians call the fall. It's when sin enters the world through our first parents. Through Adam and Eve, who, when they choose to doubt the goodness of God's rule and go against it, creatures deciding to live their lives their own way without the Creator. And really, that's how we define sin. 
That's how we define sin. Sin is basically just doubting what God reveals in his word and choosing to live our lives without him. It's like figuratively taking God off his throne and putting ourselves in his place. And when this happens, when sin enters the world in Genesis 3, I mean, things just go bonkers, right? The whole thing just unravels. The order of creation gets flipped on its head. Ephesians 2 gives us a glimpse into how that personally affects us now. It says in Ephesians 2, it says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This, is the, this, this whole passage describes what, what, what a person looks like apart from God's grace. He says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, uh, that's, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, he says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You see, because sin entered the world instead of life, now there's death. Death and decay become just a regular part of our human existence. Instead of relationship, there's hostility. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, realized that they were naked and ashamed after they sinned. Like their eyes were open, they realized they were naked and ashamed, which had little to do with nudity and everything to do with the state of the human heart. You see, God's original design was for us to never need to hide. And, to, and his original design for us was to completely lack the capacity to experience shame. Imagine that. Imagine living in an existence where you just don't even have the capacity to feel shame. Because sin entered the world, instead of blessing now, there's curse. When it entered the world, a shadow was cast over that good creation, and now the earth, its creatures, and all mankind are now stained by sin. This is why it was reread earlier in Romans 8. Our soul groans with creation for all things to be, to, for things to be restored. That's why there are things in this world that make us go, this is not right. The reason that we long for something better, for something more, for something more more whole, it's because sin broke what was good and perfect. And there's something inside all of us that just kind of knows that. There's a part of us that it just gnaws in our guts that says there's got to be more to, to this, to the world than this. So the big answer to what is wrong with the world, with what went wrong, is, is sin. Sin. The diagnosis of sin. Sin has stained all things. That's the cancer. And it grows. It's lasted generation upon generation. So how do we remove it? What is the remedy? If sin causes death, if it causes hostility, if it causes a curse, if the reason that we have tragedies and, and, and earthquakes and disasters and the reason that we, we hate one another and that, that we're, we're so self-centered, if, if, if sin is the pervasive problem, the common denominator for all of that, then what is the remedy? 
That leads us to our third and final point, which is the remedy for our longing. The remedy for our longing. See, the way that we respond to our longing, that longing that we all feel, is through hope in Jesus Christ. We know that because if sin is the diagnosis, then our hope in Jesus is the cure. You see, that's what Christmas is all about, right? Christmas is all about the fact that hope is here. Hope is here because God came to be with us, to be with us in the mess and to take care of it himself on the cross. If you've been here long enough, you've probably heard me talk about how like a common criticism against Christianity that I get from sort of like my unbelieving friends is this, is this fact that, that they say that, that, that evil and tragedy exist in the world. The argument goes like this. They say, if God is so good, then why does the world just stink? Why are people so awful? Why is there so much evil, so much corruption? Like, why doesn't God just do anything about that? You see, Christmas reminds us that God has done something. Jesus came. You see, that's the whole point of the Christmas story. That is the center of the Christian worldview. Jesus came. God is with us. God fixes it. Our hope is not from within us. It's from outside of us. There's a plot summary of the Bible in 1 Peter chapter 1 that shows us that the hope of our souls, that the hope that our souls long for is ultimately found in Jesus. And 1 Peter chapter 1 provides us a, 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 a hope. It gives us a glimpse of a hope that both looks back to the past, a hope from the past, a hope that looks forward to the future, and a hope that helps us endure here in the present, in the here and now. You probably couldn't find a better like sort of Advent uh, 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 passage, the fullness of Advent, uh, hope for the past, present, and future than, than right here. And so first I want us to look in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, a hope that looks back. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his grace, great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, you need to know that, that when Peter's writing this, he's writing to a group of, 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 of Christians that uh, he, he addresses them as the elect exiles. In other words, they're Christians who are living in sort of like exiles, right? Because of their faith, like they're, they're not welcome in their original hometowns, right? So they're experiencing suffering. They're experiencing groaning. If anyone's asking, why are things this way? It's these guys. And Peter writes to them and he says, blessed be God. Even in the midst of your situation, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he reminds them what's of first importance. He says, God has caused us to be born again to a, what kind of hope? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. What did God do? What did this verse, does this verse tell us that God did for us? He did the one thing that we could not do, that we could not achieve or earn or deserve on our own. 
He gave us salvation. He gave us hope in the mess. Sin brought death to humanity, but Jesus brings new life. Sin brought hopelessness, but Jesus brings new hope. You see, Peter is reminding these believers of the historic reality that Jesus came, that he came to restore what was broken, to renew what was dead, and to save sinners who are lost in sin. You see, Peter reminds them that apart from Jesus, our our greatest reason that we long and that we groan and that we say things are not right The greatest reason for that is because we are spiritually dead, apart from the grace of God. We're not just morally impure. We're not just lost. We're not just ignorant. We are spiritually dead. Totally depraved and unable to respond to the truth of God's word. And so therefore, we are in desperate need of what? Living hope, salvation. And it's in that hopelessness that God sends his son to die, to suffer, and to experience the weight of all evil on the cross in our place for our sins. And one of the things that we cannot say in light of this passage is that God doesn't care. One of the things that we cannot say is that God doesn't love us or that he's indifferent. We cannot say that God didn't do anything. Peter reminds us that Jesus died and rose for us. You see, the Holy Son of God plunged himself into the fire furnace of sin and suffering and evil because he does care, because he does love Because he does not want to leave us without hope. And Peter says in this verse, in verse 3, Peter says the reason that Jesus did this is according to his great mercy. It's not because we're awesome or because I'm special or because you're noble and strong. Our hope isn't given because of anything in us, but because of something in him. Mercy. Mercy. And how does he do that? How does he give us this mercy? Look at verse 3 again. It says, He caused us to be born again to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Why was Jesus born? So that we could be born again. Why did Jesus come? So that we could come to him as sons and daughters. So if you want to know the remedy for our longing, the first thing you have to do is you have to look back with hope. The good news that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose for us, for me and for you. In the midst of our hopelessness, he came to bring us hope. Now we look forward. Now we have a hope that looks forward. Read read the end of verse 3 again with me and then into verse 4 and 5. He says, we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable. An inheritance, this is future, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
So when Jesus returns, evil and suffering and death and all that is wrong with the world will be swallowed up in victory once and for all. Peter says that this inheritance that Jesus gives is imperishable. That means it can never grow old. It's undefiled. Nobody can, 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 can scandalize it. It's unfading. It, it lasts. And it gets better and better every day. No matter what it is that you're dealing with today, no matter what it is that you're longing for or that you're wrestling with, we, because of Jesus, are moving forward toward glory. There is a day and there's a time where you will experience, because of Jesus, hope and glory in all of its fullness. And every dark thing that you've ever seen or experienced will be gone will be swallowed up. Every dark thing you've ever thought or did will be gone and swallowed up. By God's power, we are being guarded, verse 5 says, through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We're being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now that Greek word for guarded there, gives us this sort of picture of a fortress. That's, that, that's what that word means. It's, so this, this, this sense of a, a fortress, like in, in, in Psalm 46, it says that God is our fortress. This same God is guarding us for that day. God is saying that this, this, this future hope is being guarded for us. He's guarding it like a fortress. If you don't have the strength, if you feel like, you know, I just don't have the strength to endure, maybe you don't. But God does. And God is guarding you for that day. He's guarding your faith for that day. There's this picture that we see in uh, C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle from the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, We don't have a slide for it, but I'm going to read it to you. Um, at, the, at, at the end of, when, when everything sort of resolves itself, at the end of the final battle, when like evil and Narnia has been completely destroyed, uh, it, here's what, what, how Lewis describes this final scene. He's talking about Aslan here, the lion, and he says, as he spoke, as Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful and I cannot even write them. And for us, this is the end of all stories. We can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. He's saying all the characters live happily ever after. But he says, but for them, for the, for the Pevensey children, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. And now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. You see, C.S. Lewis uses this analogy in the last battle of just the kind of hope that we can look forward to on that final day, that eternal hope that we can look forward to. 
Jesus has secured for us an eternal future where there will be no more groanings for hope, no more longings for mercy, no more grieving over death, no more guilt for our sin. He promises and guards for us a future day where there will be no more shootings in our schools, no more abuse in our relationships, no more tragedy attacking our families, no more racism in the cities, no more oppression in the world's governments, no more corruption in our churches. Life will triumph over death. That's what Jesus came to bring. He came to bring us that. Life will triumph over death. Mercy and grace will triumph over sin. Truth, goodness, and beauty will rise from the ashes of evil, suffering, and tragedy. And so we're going to look back at what Jesus has done, but we also look forward ahead to our living hope, our inheritance. And lastly now, I want you to see now how that hope just sort of presses into the present. In the here and now, because that's where we live, isn't it? We live in the here and now. Read verse 6 and 7 with me of 1 Peter. It says, uh, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, here, Peter is describing for us how this hope that he's been talking about, this hope from the past, this hope that looks to the future, he describes how that hope kind of has teeth in the here and now. And he uses these words. He says, you know, grief. He says you're going to experience grief and trials and testing, which, let's be honest, are not super exciting words, right? No one signs up for those. But those words kind of describe the reality that we live in, don't, don't they? Grief, trials, testing. And when Peter uses the phrase, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire. What he's talking about is that sort of process that metal goes through when it's being refined, right? Like when a metalsmith first works with metal, it's kind of in this funky ore state. And ore isn't usable because for, for things like jewelry because it has imperfections on it. It has no strength. It's a little pliable. It has no beauty. It's not, it's not shiny. Like nobody has ore hanging around their neck, right? What a metalsmith does is, is, is he or she will add white hot heat to transform the metal so that its, its nature can be sort of purified so that it can be made stronger and made more beautiful. When you, and when you come to Jesus, Peter's saying, when you come to Jesus, you're kind of like that, that, that funky piece of ore. You're like a piece of ore. There are times where you will struggle in your faith because of suffering that you're enduring or because of evil in the world that you're just sort of wrestling with in prayer, groaning with, asking like, why is it this way? And it's in those moments that the Son of God applies the white, hot, boiling heat to take your heart to places that you never intended to go. 
in order to produce what you cannot achieve on your own. Our God is zealously committed to purifying you, to strengthening you, to making you look beautiful from the inside out in a lasting way. You see, the moments where we wrestle with God in prayer, where we feel the grief of loss and of pain, of, of weakness and lament and groaning, those are the moments that the Lord is using to refine us. That's when he's sort of applying that white hot heat. I want you to read these, the, these, these next two verses, and these will be the last that we'll read. In verse, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse, verses 8 and 9. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. This is talking about Jesus. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, this is good news. This is the good news of hope. This is the good news of Christmas hope, of Advent hope. One day, one day that Jesus who came for us will come again. One day we will see Jesus sort of face to face. He's going to return and he's going to fulfill to the fullest the deepest longings of our souls that we've been unpacking about this morning, this groanings that we've been talking about. He's going to fulfill them to the fullest degree. That is the beauty of the Advent season. That is the beauty of the Christmas season. See, Advent means arrival. And it's a time not only to celebrate the first arrival of our Lord when he came as a baby in Bethlehem, but it's also a time for us to look forward to his second arrival as a king in triumph. We live right now between those two places. We live in the in-between. It's a place of beauty but it's also a place of tension and groaning and longing because Jesus has brought us peace, but we long for more peace. He has saved my soul, but we still sort of sin and struggle in the meantime. I belong to God, but I don't always feel like I'm with him. There's this tension there these groanings, these longings. What is the good news that you preach to yourself in those moments? The good news to preach to yourself in those moments, this Advent season, we're reminded, is the message that hope is here. Hope is here because of Jesus. Hope for our longings, hope from our sin, Hope for the whole world. One practical point for us this morning is just to rejoice that hope is here. He's making all things new here in our hearts and out in the world. As far as the curse is found, his hope is spreading.
And then we can't, we can't, we can't miss that. Like, like sometimes the holiday season becomes so ubiquitous that just even with the, the, the songs and the celebration and the joy and the parties and stuff that we can kind of miss the point, the most important point, that hope is here, right? You guys remember when my friend Thomas came in, as our, 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 uh, Thomas Anderson, Pastor Thomas, uh, who, who came in from, from Maryland and, and, and preached preach for us here uh, earlier in, in, in the summer? Um, Dude, it's so funny. Like we we had this. Uh, he, he showed up at at our house, and he was like super giddy, FaceTiming his wife, and he he turns the phone around and he's like, "Look, he's like, there's a palm tree in Pobletti's front yard. There's a palm tree in Pobletti's front yard. Like he in his mind, like where he comes, there's no palm trees anywhere. And to him, palm trees meant like resort and like luxury, right? Like here, like palm trees are." everywhere, right? There's a palm tree in my front yard, and I don't even re- realize that. It's, the only time I remember it's there is when my son runs into it, right? I'm like, oh yeah, there's a palm tree right there between my yard and our neighbor's yard. And then we go, I took him to the movies, because he's like a big movie buff, and so we went to, to, the, to, to the movies, and he was like freaking out that the Regal and Foothill had like rows of palm trees like, like lined up going in, which... I didn't notice those either until he pointed it out to me. And he's FaceTiming his wife again. He's like, look, there's palm trees and there's mountains in the back. He's like, there's mountains. He's like, I'm driving distance to the beach and there's a mountain right there. And I'm like, it's just Saddleback Mountains. This isn't like Colorado or somewhere cool like that, right? Like, it's just Saddleback Mountains. But he's like freaking out. He's like, there's a mountain here. and There's palm trees there. And I could drive to the beach right now. And I had this conversation with him. I was like, hey, you know, I guess... I guess the place I live is like pretty cool, right? <laughs> you kind of, when, when it becomes like so ubiquitous, when you have just these regular like rhythms, when you're seeing palm trees and mountains and the beach just like all the time, it just, it just kind of is. It's not special anymore. But man, the one practical point that we don't want to move on from this Advent season is just rejoicing in the fact that hope is here. Rejoice that hope is here, that God is making all things new. Enjoy the Christmas trees and the tinsels, the gifts and all the get-togethers, but enjoy most of all the good news that hope has come in Jesus Christ. Jesus has come. He will come again. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.